You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Bible College there. We looked at going to Guatemala and Spain with AMG. 
But none of it had to do with apologetics. We just were exploring those options, and God kept closing the doors. And finally, in August 2012, I asked Kevin, well, let's look into this Ratio Christie thing. So I sent an email, and within two hours, Blake Anderson, uh, the chief operating officer, called me and said, we have been praying for 10 months that God would raise someone up in New England. Mm-hmm. And we were the first. Mm, nice. So that is how we started with Ratio Christie, and uh, it's been a, quite a journey. We are the first recognized chapter here in New England, and a lot of people may not know this, but New England is uh, heavily unchurched. Vermont and New Hampshire tie for first in being 97% unchurched. Wow. So it's a difficult, hard mission field here. So that's how I got started with Ratio Christi, and, and that's what I do full-time, and I'm part-time staff at my church as a worship leader. Well, for anyone interested, back in September 21st of 2013, I actually interviewed John Stewart of Ratio Christi International. So if you're interested in finding out more about Ratio Christi, that's one of the places you can go to. Now, Lori, what about abortion? You didn't say anything in there that I remember about <laughs> abortion. What, what's your interest in the topic of abortion? Well, I have been involved in the pro-life ministry since I was in junior high. Mm -hmm. I wrote my first paper on abortion in the seventh grade. Mm -hmm. I debated it in high school. I also debated uh, surrogate motherhood in high school. And then in college, I wrote a paper uh, basically making the argument that we need to make abortion illegal in all cases. That was at a secular university, the University of Colorado. And my professor was quite unhappy with me, but I will say, thankfully, she graded me very fairly. So academically, I've been uh, against abortion and for life for for a long time. The home that I grew up in was strong Christian home, grew up in a Christian school, very evolved in church, gave my life to Christ when I was seven. But like a lot of teenagers, I... uh, made a stupid decision. I had been dating a young man at my school for over a year and uh, bought the lie that we were going to get married. And so going ahead and having sex was okay because we were going to be married. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm the poster child that you can use birth control and still get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I got pregnant, but I did not know it. Uh, I, I'm also one of those people who could be on that television show about being pregnant and not knowing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did not know I was pregnant for six months. Mm. And it was through a kind of an offhand remark by my dad about maybe needing to lose a little weight that made me think something might be wrong. So even though uh, I had been broken up with my boyfriend not long after that, uh so we had been apart for six months and I hadn't dated anyone else. I knew there was a possibility I could be pregnant. I went to Planned Parenthood for a pregnancy test. This was back in 1989, so going to Walgreens and getting one was virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. And I did not go to the pregnancy center because my mom had too many friends that volunteered there. Mm-hmm. And I did not know their rules of confidentiality at the time. So I went to Planned Parenthood, and sure enough, I had a positive test, and I knew how far along I was. And the counselor 
said to me, well, the kind of abortion that you need to have is a saline abortion, and it'll cost about $1,500. And I remember thinking, I do not understand the words you were saying to me. And I said, I, I just can't do that. I have to go to work. So I was on my way to work. Mm-hmm. And I walked out. Uh, it was just about two weeks later that uh, my parents found out, and we went to the pregnancy center for help and counseling, and they were wonderful, absolutely wonderful. The uh, biological father of my son uh, wanted to be involved. He, he really wanted to be more involved in my life than uh, my son's life, and I knew that that wasn't the right decision, so um, I did not get back together with him, and we moved forward in deciding if we were going to, to raise our son or if we were going to give him up for adoption, and um, it's a whole long entailed story, but I, I won't go into all those details, but I did decide to raise my son, who was born five weeks premature. His name is Brandon, and uh, he was a beautiful little boy. He is now... 26 years old mm-hmm. and is in the Air Force and married and has a little girl of his own. Mm-hmm. And it was a hard road. I was a single mom. I hadn't finished high school and I had broken the hearts of my parents, but I knew I had done the right thing. And God blessed that decision. Uh, there's been hard times. You know, being a, a single unwed mom definitely is a is a lifetime set of consequences but the Lord has always been faithful I met Kevin when Brandon was five months old and we were married when Brandon was three and a half years old so he's always been in Brandon's life Mm -hmm. so during my college years I started volunteering at that same pregnancy center and then when we lived in Albuquerque when Kevin was stationed there uh, I became the director of client services for the Albuquerque Pregnancy Center And I also took the post-abortion counseling training and began to counsel women who had had abortions. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's one of the things that you're not really sure what to say to our in response. One thing I was thinking was I have some friends of mine, and they recently got engaged, and I talked to the guy from time to time in this couple, and one thing I did say was that, you know, uh, be very careful here is you prepare to get married because I think when you're engaged that's one of the times that temptation can really be one of the strongest because you could say oh I'm going to get married anyway so what's the big deal mm-hmm. and it really is a big deal it is a very big deal uh-huh. and for all who are, who are wondering it is doable my wife and I waited it's very much doable it's not meant to be an easy path, but it is still a doable path, and it is a worthwhile path. I have no regrets in the area. Absolutely. It is very doable, and there is such a blessing, Mm -hmm. I think, that the Lord brings on a couple when they do wait Mm -hmm. to uh, make that just such an incredible bond and and part of the oneness that the Bible speaks of. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, when we start talking about abortion also, um, I believe it was, in fact, just yesterday that we had the 43rd anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Now, when 
I say that Roe v. Wade has been around for 43 years. What goes through your head when I say that? I think about the lost generation. Mm -hmm. there, there are more children killed by abortion than all the U.S. soldiers killed in all the wars of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, dwarfs, 50 million mm -hmm. versus 1.1 million. Yeah. And I think about all the heartbreak and all the loss and how incredibly disappointing it is to the Lord mm -hmm. that that has gone on for 43 years. And yet the interesting thing is a lot of times when the Supreme Court makes a decision, even a controversial one, as the decades go on, it becomes more acceptable. But on this issue, the fight continues just as vociferously as it did 43 years ago. Mm-hmm. And also when we're like this, I, I didn't watch it, but I did see a clip of Obama speaking. A lot of people were sharing us on Facebook about how we've been uh, celebrating freedom and rights for women for 43 years. Did you happen to see that clip? And if you did, what did you think of it? If you didn't, what do you think about what I've said about it? Well, I didn't see the clip. I saw the headline, you know, an attachment to the story, but mm -hmm. I didn't didn't see the actual clip. Mm -hmm. The funny thing that I think is just really incredibly dishonest about that is that it's not freeing for women. And let me explain why. In a series of Supreme Court cases, it has been ruled that women are not required to be given the medical disclosures that they would be given for any other outpatient procedure. Even in states where they require an ultrasound prior to an abortion, most often the abortionist will turn the ultrasound away from the patient just so that they can say they did the ultrasound, but they know how it will affect the woman. Mm -hmm. So it's not freedom. Women are really deceived, not just by the rhetoric of the movement, but even one-on-one -on -one in the office of the abortionist. They are deceived. They are not told the risk factors. They are not told the gestational age of the baby. They are not told the development of the baby. And I don't think that's very freeing for women. I think that's mm -hmm. incredibly deceptive. Mm -hmm. Honestly, my first thought, and it was it went back to when Obama recently did this whole gun control mm. executive order. When he's talking about we are losing all these children, and was crying. Yes. Now, I'm not saying whether his tears are sincere or not, but as soon as he said, I thought, yeah, what about all the children we're losing to abortion? you have any tears for those? Right. I agree with that. It was very hypocritical, mm -hmm. especially when uh, gun violence doesn't even take a fraction of the children that abortion does. Mm -hmm. And that could even be on a daily basis. Yes. Now... When I also heard him talk about being freeing, I thought it was the exact opposite as well. And for another reason, where first off, let's say a simple fact that a lot of women, because of abortion, are not being given the freedom to live because they're murdered right in their mother's wombs. Yes. And they are. And, and that's the, the other interesting thing that the feminist movement refuses to acknowledge, that for their right as a woman, they are willing to take away the right to life of another woman. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's a complete deception in their mind, a delusion that that is still okay when it is far from it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the other way I thought that this was uh, not freeing for women is because I think every woman knows out there when she comes of age and such that most any man will say or do anything just for a chance to get sex. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if he he knows that there could be serious consequences such as a woman getting pregnant because of this and nothing that can be done about it, well, he might think twice. But if he thinks, oh, well, she can just go and get an abortion and that's no big deal then he has more incentive to, in fact, just use that woman as an object. That's right. And, you know, there there has always been, you know, even prior to abortion being legalized, mm-hmm. this, I don't know, double standard that it's the woman who's responsible for not getting pregnant, it's the woman who takes care of the birth control, yeah. you know, just that freedom for the man and you're right. There are a lot of men who are, use women, use sex. They don't care about the consequences. And they there's a lot of them who will pressure a woman mm-hmm. to have an abortion, even if she doesn't want it. In fact, most of the women that I counseled in the pregnancy center, both those who were not considering abortion and those who were, and the ones who had had an abortion, almost every one of them said, that the father was pressuring them. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's because abortion is so easy and so readily available that men think that way. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is there are men out there who are opposed to abortion. They, right. They're not opposed to premarital sex, but they're opposed to abortion. And we've told them they don't get a say. Mm-hmm. And so there are post-abortive men out there who have lost children that they would have preferred to raise. Yeah, I had a D.D. Warren on the show last year who gave her testimony of having had abortions in the past. And we talked about how there are ministries out there to counsel women who are grieving abortions. I think Rachel's Vineyard might have been one of them. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. You probably know. No, you're right. And most CareNet pregnancy centers have counselors who are trained in post-abortion counseling as well. Yeah, but, and then towards the end of the show, we asked, you know, I've asked about places where women can go, but there are a lot of men who probably need to go to these kinds of places as well, because some men might have have, yeah. have a pressured their girlfriends or wives to have an abortion, and then later on became Christians or changed their minds through some other means and said, oh my gosh, what did I do? And they have just as much guilt. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, uh, the pregnancy centers will meet with the men. Oftentimes, the counselor, it's just, most of them are staffed by women. Some are fortunate enough to have volunteer counselors who are men, but most of them are staffed by women. But in that particular case, usually the counsel, the counselor will bring in a male member of the board or the staff who's also been trained in the center, but maybe not in post-abortive counseling, but to be there as a man. There are men who have taken the the training and can also be there, but I I tell you, it's one way men could get involved is to be trained counselors, not just in post-abortion, but in crisis counseling as well, because we don't have enough men to meet with the men when they come in. Let's go on and answer that kind of question right now, in case I forget later on. If a man wanted to do that kind of thing, 
where would he go? The first thing he should do is look and see if there's a care net or a crisis pregnancy center in his area. Mm-hmm. They are all over the country in many, many towns, and they are the ones who do the counseling and the volunteer training. That would be the first place that I would go. The second place that I would go, what I, I would look for, like uh, Catholic ministries, Bethany, um, Bethany ministries, anywhere that the Catholic Church may also have. They have their own set of pregnancy centers as well. Those are the two primary places to go as a man to get training and to volunteer and to be on the front lines of, of helping other people. Now, you can be involved in praying outside of abortion clinics, like with uh, 40 Days for Life, Right to Life. There are many organizations where you can be outside of abortion clinics praying, willing to street counsel women. But if you want to be in that one in one-on-one setting where you're meeting regularly with someone, it would be through the pregnancy centers. Now, to be sure, since you mentioned Catholic organizations, there's, in fact, no requirement that you be Catholic no. to do this kind of thing. Right. No. Now, when we're talking about this also, uh, I've been reading a book by Francis Beckwith, who we're working on getting on the show. For those of you out there interested, in fact, he sent me this book wanting to be on the show. So it's it's a good possibility you're going to see him on here sometime about taking rights seriously. And one thing he says is we usually make a mistake in the abortion debate with you, that we make it a religious argument when really it isn't. Correct. What do you what do you think is meant by that? Well, first of all, from a scientific standpoint, there is a distinct, completely genetically different individual at the moment of conception. Mm-hmm. There is no debate there. Mm-hmm. There's no argument that at that moment there's a complete, unique, individual human being. So scientifically, that's been dealt with. Mm-hmm. The second issue that is comes into play is if that human being is a person, which we can talk about separately later. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is an issue that talks about how do we take care of the human race mm-hmm. and what is the best legal and reasonable way to take care of the human race. Mm-hmm. And that isn't mm-hmm. a religious argument. Right. It's an ethical argument. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about this, some people say, well, geez, a lot of churches have these strong positions, though. A lot of Christians do have these positions. And yes, that is because we do, in fact, have some theological views, but our views aren't just based on something like where the Bible says, therefore, or church tradition says, therefore. Our arguments are very metaphysical and scientific arguments that anyone could make and many of the arguments you'd make an atheist could make the exact same arguments couldn't they they absolutely could one of the areas that they could argue that would be what what makes a person now this is this is a philosophical question is a person made up of the sum of its parts mm-hmm. or is a person made up of a substance and i think if you went out on the street and asked somebody this question is a man who lost his arm in the Afghanistan war still a person? Yeah. They would say yes. Yeah. They they logically and intuitively understand that that 
that losing a part doesn't change that you are a person. Well, that's true on the front end as well. Just because you haven't developed that arm yet, you're still a person. Mm -hmm. And so we have that philosophical conversation that, again, is not based from a from a biblical standpoint, although as Christians we we can argue that case, that philosophical case, and back it up with Scripture. Mm-hmm. But I also think you've got to ask the legal questions. What gives you the right to take an innocent life? Mm-hmm. What is your... What is your driving force or your motive for allowing abortion on demand at any stage, which is 95 to 97% of the abortion? Mm-hmm. And do we as the human race have a right to, uh, to, to do that based on whatever motives we have? And I think that, I think there can be a legal argument that no, you can't do that to another person walking on the street, you shouldn't be able to do that a person simply because they aren't outside the womb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, said before on my own Facebook feed that we we sometimes talk about the Canaanite culture and the Old Testament about how wicked they were, and yeah. we can also get debates about, oh, what, was it wrong for God to order the destruction of the Canaanites and such, but when we talk about how wicked they were, one of the practices that comes up is child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. They did, and I've said, you know, what they did was wicked and evil, but we can say when they sacrificed their children, they, they did it for the good of the harvest and for the whole of the community. Yeah, it didn't work, but that's why we're doing it. Today, we sacrifice our children at the altar of convenience. We're even worse than they were. That's right. And not only that, we are doing it for ourselves. They at least yep. were trying to do it for a god. Right. We, we've set ourselves up as God, and we're doing it for ourselves, for our own convenience, for our own reputations, for a host of reasons that have no business in child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for that matter, the same, the same people would not do it to an infant, but they've bought the lies of the abortion movement, mm-hmm. that it's not a child and it's not a person. Unfortunately, though, there are some people in the abortion movement who would do that to an infant, though. Oh, yeah, Peter Singer being yep. at the top of the list. Yeah. And he would argue that you don't have, you are not a person until you ha- can self-actualize your own reason, mm-hmm. which doesn't really happen until the age of two or three, and he's been open about that. He was on Good Morning America a couple years ago mm-hmm. saying that very thing that that up to two or three, they're, they have no rights. And he says it on the back end as well. If you have dementia or some kind of cognitive disease or physical disablement, then, you know, you don't have any rights either. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here this minute and having, what, what do you say exactly when you just hear something that just, it just blows your mind? I mean, I'm thinking if you're talking about we used to say, for instance, a cognitive disorder and such. And my wife and I are both on the spectrum with Asperger's, and I'm, mm. I, I just can't look and say, would he look at both of us and say, yeah, you don't really have rights and your lives aren't worth living? Well, he would probably make a judgment call mm-hmm. on that. Because you can live independently and you can think and reason, he'd probably be okay. But... Get, let me give a different example. Uh, my grandmother, who had a genius IQ, she was the vice president of a bank at a time when women did not work in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. 
and she did people's taxes when she was retired. She was the one people went to with their most complicated tax problem. She developed vascular dementia, mm -hmm. and it was extremely sad to watch. Well, when she got towards the end of her life, she couldn't remember that my uncle had died 30 years before, and she'd think she would see her mother and things like that. And, yes, Peter Singer would say, we should go ahead and euthanize her. She is a drain on society. She's mm -hmm. a drain on our medical resources, and she's going to die anyway, and she can't even remember that she, what she ate this morning. So, yes, we should euthanize her. Yeah. Once again, it, it's kind of a position that words can't even begin to describe what what I think when I hear that kind of thing. It, it, if... Uh, okay, I'm thinking right now that uh, G.K. Chesterton did say years ago that uh, that original sin was one of the most empirically provable doctrines of Christianity out there, and I think this just really demonstrates it. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think, you know, what I will give Peter Singer credit for is he does follow the logical conclusion of his own viewpoint to mm -hmm. its end. Right. And he's bold about it. Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't understand why somebody like him is allowed to continue in the position that he holds because it's morally and socially repugnant mm. but he is at least honest about it I think most people though do not understand that when we devalue life at the beginning at the very moment that that new life is formed we devalue all of life mm -hmm. and it leads to things like euthanasia and the Holocaust and infanticide and a host of other atrocities. For those who don't know, Peter Singer is the chair of bioethics at Princeton, isn't he? <laughs> yes, to me that sounds like an oxymoron. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I remember watching O'Reilly with my parents several years ago and well, he said he was going to be talking with a professor who was angry about the bombings going on in Iraq because of innocents being caught in a fire and well, oh, this will be interesting next thing I know he, the professor he's arguing with is Peter Singer I'm like, oh my gosh I, I <laughs> cannot believe the irony in this yes <laughs> well I use when I, when I teach on personhood mm -hmm. to students I use his clip from Good Morning America in my presentation mm -hmm. And they ask him right up front what he thinks about personhood. And I'm astonished that at a, you know, really what is a coffee-type level news show, it's not even really news, he, he came right out and said these kinds of things. And most of the students, when they hear it, are just appalled and shocked mm -hmm. that he was so open about it. Mm -hmm. But they don't understand that underlying the entire movement of abortion is pretty much a recognition that they're committing murder. I remember reading in uh, J.P. Moreland's book, Body and Soul, there there was an abortion rights movement woman who said, we might as well just accept what we're doing is killing a person. Mm -hmm. But her argument is that the rights of the adult trump the rights of the unborn child. Mm -hmm. But it was a, it was an admission that it was murder. I'm also thinking that, that Peter Singer did once say that pro-lifers are certainly right. Well, at one point that 
there was nothing, I mean, I'm, it's not an exact quote, but there was nothing magical about the birth canal that suddenly <laughs> makes what's in the womb be a person. And I really think that's a powerful point we could take. It is. And, you know, Scott Klusendorf yep. talks about that with his sled uh, mm-hmm. point, that, that location does not matter. Right. And, yes, a few inches does not change whether the baby was non-person to person. Mm-hmm. Although it's interesting to me when I read stories online where it talks about women who had an abortion at 39 weeks and things like that. My son was born at 35 weeks. Mm-hmm. There are children, and he did not need any extra measures. There are children who are born earlier than that that need some extra measures. But you know, 34, 35 weeks, you can be born and not need any NICU care or anything like that. And there are women who have abortions at 39 weeks. This is a mm-hmm. viable child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother was born premature, I think, and the roommate who I had back in seminary who was the best man at my wedding he was also born premature and yeah it one other thing i'm thinking is this idea that uh you can have such a contradiction going on the hospital that you can have a five a baby born after five months who's premature and doctors are doing everything they can in one room to save him the next room they're they're killing another five month old in a medical procedure yes mm-hmm well, and I will also say that uh, the one of the things that's very frustrating to me is happening now. Mm. There's such a stranglehold on medical resources that people who really do meet the requirements of viability, which is a, between 21 and 23 weeks, depending on where you live, are not being allowed to do all the measures to save that baby. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, using an example of, of a premature, you know, whether it's a, you know, failure of the cervix or an, a premature rupture of the membranes, whatever causes that premature labor to come on that can't be stopped, there are doctors who are claiming medical futility and refusing these life-saving measures and you can have that happen in one hospital and in another hospital across the road, they could be doing everything they can to save that 23-weeker. Mm-hmm. I'm also remembering that uh, we recently got Netflix over here. And uh-huh. I'm going to get back into watching House. Yes. Because <laughs> I used to thoroughly enjoy watching that show. And, yeah, there are a lot of things I like about House's personality. Not his rabid atheism, but... I, I really liked a lot of the way he handled things, no nonsense, things of that sort. And there was an episode I do have it. I did watch up to the fit, to the end of the fifth season, so I'm I'm on the sixth one now. There was an episode of the third one, I think it was, with a lady who had who was pregnant, and there was something wrong with the baby, mm-hmm. and House was one to just abort, and. If you're know, saying your your life is in danger, and she kept saying, "I don't care. I'm not going to abort. I'm not going to abort." So they had to do an operation that would, in fact, affect the child somehow. I don't remember all the details, but you can see him doing a in a room doing the surgery and such. And all of a sudden, this tiny little hand reaches out and just clutches his finger there, and yep. he just freezes. And they say, "Doctor House, what's going on?" Just remember, I forgot to TiVo Eldian tonight. 
But the very next time when he talks to the, uh, the mother, he, he says, your baby, etc. And she says, you know, that's the first time you said baby. You did not say it before. You said fetus. Now you're saying baby. And I, I was really surprised. I was allowed to get on the air. Yeah, I was too. I thought that was very interesting that they allowed that. The other interesting thing is in the media, mm-hmm. other than recently in, in an episode mm-hmm. um, where they played Silent Night while a woman had an abortion, which was quite a in, quite an insult to Christianity. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, abortion is not portrayed positively in the media. Uh-huh. And so on the one hand, I was not surprised that in the House ep- episode, he, you know, sort of changed his mind, or at least reluctantly so. But on the other hand, they de facto argued the pro-life case mm-hmm. by by the baby grabbing his hand, by all the arguments. And so, you know, it, it's fascinating to me how the media can can be so upside down in its thinking while they're trying to support a woman's right to choose and an abortion. They end up showing the truth of the pro-life view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter Hitchens, the uh, brother of the late Christopher Hitchens, is actually a very devout Christian, and he's been on Unbelievable doing debates. And whenever abortion comes up, it he he gets very livid and clear about his stance on matters. He says, you know, they will show almost anything over here on British TV, but you will not see an abortion taking place. No one will televise that one. No. And, you know, it, I think that's because the majority of people are still mm-hmm. either unsure of or intuitively against abortion. Mm-hmm. I, I can say, for instance, my wife, Allie, started watching once to see what was like that video, The Silent Scream. Oh, yes. She couldn't finish it. I am not about to go near it because I am no. incredibly squeamish. <laughs> Yes, I I would. I saw it when I was in high school, and I will say that was probably the right age to have it as a mother now. And I have mm-hmm. six children, mm-hmm. and one who is uh, with the Lord. Mm-hmm. I I could not watch it now, even though I even know what it's about. Mm-hmm. Now, before we start talking about the uh, help for the women and such, just do give some sort of apologetic. Okay, Peter Singer has this position that a baby's not really a person or a human. You know, there are some people who use the term fetus and such. So if we're going to counsel people out of this decision, why should we even think this is a human being in the first place? Well, it's kind of, I can give you the academic answer. The academic answer is that at the moment that this baby was conceived, a wholly new person was formed genetically. The genetic code is completely different from the mother. And therefore, this life, even though it has not fully developed into what it appears to be a human being, is a complete human being. All the genetic information that is needed to develop into a full-size adult is contained in that single cell at the moment of conception. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, I really, I'm not going to come up with something unique. I like Scott Klusendorf's response to this mm-hmm. and and so let me just go through it for those of you who do not know he is the head of life training institute mm-hmm. 
and he has this acronym SLED. The first letter is S, which refers to size. So logically, let's think, a two-year-old is a person, and that same two-year-old when they're 18 is a person, and when they're 80 is the same person. Mm -hmm. So regardless of how big he is, he is still a person. And so an embryo is just a small person, the smallest person you can be. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the L is level of development. Now, this is where I argued the case about the Afghanistan war veteran. There are aspects of development, lower order and higher order development, that come over time. And even though you may not even develop all of them, say someone who doesn't develop uh, the ability to see and is born blind, mm -hmm. that's that potential is still there in the genetic code because they are a member of the human race. So whether an embryo is, you know, recognizable as a, as a human being or not, it doesn't matter. Just like when they are one day old, they don't have self-awareness. They don't have the ability to read and write. Those are mm -hmm. higher order levels of development but they will develop them over time. So level of development doesn't matter. The potential for development, even if it's not fully developed, it's still there because of being a member of the human race. Mm -hmm. um, the second, the third letter is uh, environment. And this mm -hmm. is what we were discussing about the birth canal not being, you know, some kind of game changer and making a person a person. Whether a baby is in the womb or out of the womb, they are the same baby. Something did not dramatically happen to their genetic code or to who they are when they came through the birth canal. Just like the same baby, whether they're in a crib or they're in an adult-sized bed, it doesn't change the fact that they are a person. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, and this is the one that most uh, pro-abortion people will argue, and that is dependency. Mm -hmm. You hear the argument all the time. Why should I allow this child to remain in me because it's wholly dependent on me and mm -hmm. sucking my life away? And, and that is just ridiculous because we don't kill children or adults or elderly people simply because they are dependent on mm -hmm. someone or mm -hmm. something. Just like a you know, somebody who is dependent on uh, vitamin D because they don't they don't absorb enough of it and they have to take vitamin D every day. We would not say, well, we should just kill that person because they're dependent on a medication. Mm -hmm. We don't argue that it, take it take it out of the human world. We don't kill puppies because they're dependent on a mother and if the mother dies and they're dependent on human beings to take care of them, we don't just say, well, we'll just kill the puppies. Right. We don't see anybody advocating for that. Mm -hmm. And so the last, that last letter in the SLED argument is uh, degree of dependency. So all of those taken together do not require a biblical foundation. Mm -hmm. And yeah. go ahead. Yeah, in fact, when you have a biblical foundation, you can even find groups like the, the Secular Pro-Life Alliance. Yes. There. 
Yes, you absolutely can. And there's also Feminists for Life, which is yeah. not a Christian organization. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. women who are feminists, but they are pro-life. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, give some <coughs> pushback, though, <coughs> because a lot of people in my audience, we all know what all count arguments. Some people will say, well, what about the process of twinning? I mean, persons don't twin, but some embryos in the womb do twin. So what's going on there? <clears throat> well, again, you still have now two genetically different human beings from the mother. They might be genetically the same when we're talking identical twins, but they are still wholly different from the mother. Mm-hmm. So the arguments are all the same as far as the mother is concerned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <clears throat> when they're born, then that becomes a whole different ballgame. I, I have several sets of twin friends who are identically the same, but personality-wise they are not. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, those are things that science is still trying to figure out, personalities. How much does personality come through our environment versus our genetic code? Mm-hmm. And we don't have good answers to those questions. But again, when we're talking about abortion, whether you're talking twins or triplets or quintuplets, they are still distinct human beings from the mother. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they are living human beings. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm talking about more of this idea that it that something usually somehow splits into in the womb and then comes back together and forms one entity. I, I think it's called twinning, but I'm not sure. Okay, okay. Um, that's a good question. I'm not very familiar with uh, how often that happens and how often that develops into a viable human being. Mm-hmm. So that would be uh, that would be a good question to uh, look into. Okay. And what about this one as well? That uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson is very famous for presenting this kind of story, where you wake up one day and you find that the National Music Asso- Lovers Association has kidnapped you and hooked you up to a machine where you you will be living in tandem with the world's greatest violinist and he'll be living off of you for just nine months. If if you remove everything, he'll die. But shouldn't you go through and keep the world's greatest violinist alive? Even though it'll certainly be a huge inconvenience on you. And you know, she says a lot of people might say, well, it'd be a good thing for you to do this, but you're not really necessitated to do this. I mean, you were kidnapped against your will and forced to do something. And, I mean, isn't that kind of what's going on with pregnancy? (laughs) Well, first of all, you're not kidnapped into pregnancy for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now, we can argue the cases of rape and incest separate from that, but let's let's deal with the majority of pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Are women who have chosen to have sex Mm-hmm. knowing the risks of getting pregnant, even using birth control. Mm-hmm. So I would say the premise of that thought experiment fails from the beginning simply because you're not kidnapped into being pregnant. Mm-hmm. But even so, you have once you are pregnant, you have relinquished your right to live as any way that you see fit. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and we see this all the time. We we drill it into to mothers. You cannot smoke. You cannot drink mm-hmm. while you're pregnant. There are laws against using illicit drugs while you're pregnant. You can see commercials on TV that have one one like if you if you're pregnant or you may become pregnant. Exactly. So we we as a society have already said, look, once you're pregnant, you're you're just you're out of luck. You cannot abuse that child just because you think it's inconvenient to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. So that that's the first part that I would argue against that whole thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Because you're not you're not kidnapped into it and you simply give up your right to abuse yourself to abuse that that helpless child. But you said that's the first thing you would say. Is there anything more you'd say or <laughs> Well Generally, I would just attack the premises of it mm-hmm. because you, you get into too much arguing over the value of life. And so I don't want to get into whether it's the world's greatest violinist or if it's the homeless man on the street. Yeah. They still deserve life. I remember I have a professor back in seminar who said, we don't need to use the argument. Or you have saying, would you abort in such such cases? Where it says, well, congratulations, you've... You've aborted Beethoven or something like this. I understand what you're doing, but it doesn't matter who you've aborted, really, because you've aborted someone. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the reasons why I think it's very careful that we not use arguments like that for the pro-life argument, because every life is precious, mm-hmm. regardless if, if that person grows up, unfortunately, to commit a crime, yeah. they don't deserve to be aborted in advance. Mm-hmm. When you talk about that thing about uh, that, you usually are willing that if you have sex, you have to be open to the consequences because you'll meet several women. I mean, I've seen it sometimes. She says, yeah, I consent to sex, but I did not consent to get pregnant. <laughs> well, that's part of the problem why... Uh, part of the problem from separating sex from it from its intended purposes. Mm-hmm. And I think Francis Beckworth talks about it in the book we were discussing earlier. What is the purpose of sex? Well, there's more than one, mm-hmm. but one of the purposes is reproduction. Mm-hmm. The other is to bond a man and a woman together in a conjugal relationship. Mm-hmm. And when you separate those two and just make it about the third purpose, which is pleasure, right? then you have all those unintended consequences and problems. And that's where we are. It has mm. become all about pleasure. Right. Therefore, people say, well, I didn't want to get pregnant. Well, sex was never intended just for your pleasure. Mm-hmm. It was intended to continue the species. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's kind of like saying, yeah, I consented to shake that person's hand who has the flu. If I didn't consent to get the flu, well, that's one of the consequences if you do something like that. Or, like back in December of 2014, I think I had the worst possible flu you could have. It, it was awful. I didn't eat anything for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And my wife was there taking care of me, and lo and behold, she came down with the flu, and she could say, you know what, I consented to take care of you, but I did not consent to get the flu. Well, I'm sorry, but if you are working, she didn't say that, of course, but I think, if you're working around someone who's sick with a disease that's contagious, 
you open yourself up to possibility you could get that disease as well. That's right. Well, it's like last weekend, my husband had a stomach virus that just rendered him incapacitated. And because I knew I had to lead worship on Sunday morning, no matter what, I was masked, rubber gloved, Lysol, Mm -hmm. Clorox wipes, even when I was taking care of him. Mm -hmm. And I slept downstairs on the couch so that he could have privacy and peace and, and not have to worry about bothering me. And he could have the bed to himself. But I had to check on him multiple times in the night. But I, I, I understand what you're saying. I knew I was still taking a risk, even with all that protection, yeah. that I could get sick. Yeah, I, I get quarantined whenever I come down with something here. <laughs> but it, it, it's fine for me. I have my Kindle. I can do whatever I want. It's fine. Um, uh, that, that's Kevin. He he had his Kindle and his smartphone, and but most of the time he was just laying there. Yeah. Feeling miserable. Yeah, my, my my wife has to make me lay down many times. I want to get up. I want to. No, you have to rest. You have to rest. <laughs> no. And when you were talking about the, the purpose of sex, I, I think this is something that we also miss so much in our culture because you turn on a lot of the sitcoms and shows and such today, and it's just like sex is just this great extracurricular activity that you do if you just want to have a lot of fun with, with someone of the opposite sex. Right. Mm-hmm. And I I would say that that message has been going on even since I was a teenager, and I was a teenager in the 80s, mm-hmm. and it was all about, you know, if it's something you want to do, you should do it. It'll be yeah. good. Mm-hmm. And then there was the second lie, which was, and you can protect yourself from STDs and getting pregnant. And, mm-hmm. and I, I cannot tell you the number of teenagers that I have counseled about birth control and how it doesn't protect you from getting pregnant and how there are STDs that a condom does not cover or take Mm -hmm. or protect you from. And they're always shocked that, Mm -hmm. oh, you mean just using birth control is not going to keep me safe? No, it's not. I remember hearing years ago, Adrian Rogers, preacher of the time, said that if we want to deal with all the health crises and such in our country, just to live our lives by what's said in the Bible. And, you know, he's right. I mean, and you don't even have to be a Christian to hold to that. You can just, you could be an atheist again and say, I'm just going to hold to sex only with a person that I'm married to. And we could avoid so many of the STDs in this country just by doing that. <laughs> you know, I I think one of the thing one of the most educating um experiences in my life was when I became the director of the pregnancy center, I had to go through all of the training for all of the aspects, the maternity home, the abstinence education, mm-hmm. counseling, all of that, so that I could train others. Mm-hmm. And when I went through the abstinence education program, it was very blunt about um, STDs. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had graphic pictures like you wouldn't believe. And the consequences of getting pregnant, the consequences of abortion, and always from like an apologetic standpoint, this is the decision, here are the pros and the cons. Right. And it was always interesting to watch the students who would go through that training in the public school system in Albuquerque get to the end of the week and they would realize that abstaining from sex outside of marriage was the best option. Mm-hmm. And all you had to do was tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. 
And that's something that Planned Parenthood doesn't do, but the pregnancy centers do. If you want to know about all your options, don't go to Planned Parenthood. They're going to give you one option, and if you ask about the others, they're going to downplay your ability to choose one of the other options. Mm -hmm. In a pregnancy center, they will tell you you have an option to raise your child, relinquish your child, or abort your child, and here are the risks of all three of those decisions, and here are the positives. You get the truth when you go to a care net center mm-hmm. on abortion. You don't get it at Planned Parenthood. I can guarantee it, and they don't tell you the risks especially. <clears throat> yeah, when uh, you're talking about the importance of abstinence and teaching these children, that I, I just get amazed at, and I'm speaking from a Christian standpoint here as well, that uh, so many people look at us and say, well, you're just prudes when it comes to sex, and you're just anti-sex. And I was just want to look and say, look, I'm a married man. I am in no way anti-sex. And if you <laughs> want proof of that, read my blog also and see some of the things I've written on it. There, there was, it's no secret that I think this is something wonderful. But at the same time, I also think that the reason we keep it so guarded in many ways and I will say at least the church does need to be talking more about sexual matters a whole lot than they are right now, is because it's the same reason you put your value bars in a safety deposit box, because they are valuable and you want to protect them, so you put a hedge around them and say, this is only for this purpose and for for this place and such. And I say that for marriage because I think it's something sacred and marriage itself is something sacred, and the persons doing the activity are themselves sacred as well. I I agree with that 100%. And, you know, I it's like I tell my children, it's for having what is best mm-hmm. and not having less than best. Right. There is nothing better than being in a covenantal mm-hmm. relationship that you know you have safety and security and mm-hmm. love and respect and you can open yourself up vulnerably in sex in a safe place where you know you're not going to be diseased, abandoned, rejected. Mm-hmm. That's God's best. Mm-hmm. And you're right. We want to protect that which is best and mm-hmm. save what's best. Right. I mean, honestly, I think if abortion was not about the topic of sex, we would all be destroying the whole idea. You mean we say, no, no, we don't want anything to respect because abortion interferes with the sex lives of people. All of a sudden, we support it. Right, right. And and that's part of the problem when we go back to the early days of the abortion fight. Mm-hmm. There was a push to separate sex from what had been considered the the Christian view of marriage. Mm -hmm. And because of the sexual revolution and that major push, you started having that argument that it's my body, my right to do what I want with it, and if I want to have sex, I don't have to be married to do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait a minute. Now we have this problem of um, unwed pregnancy at a larger scale. It's always happened throughout history, but on this much larger scale, Something needs to be done, and that's why you have this push for abortion. And honestly, the Christian church really sat on the sidelines Mm -hmm. 
and let it happen. Now, the Catholic Church was against Roe v. Wade. They were very active. But the Protestant Church as a whole was not politically active and sat back and said, well, that's what private, that's private decision. We're just going to keep teaching what we're teaching, and that's that you should get married before you have sex. Mm-hmm. Not seeing what was happening on the national stage. Mm-hmm. I'd even say that that's where I, we got where we were with the Supreme Court decision on homosexuality and such. And I've told I was that I think some people have to think they have to defend because first off, it's attacking Christianity and anything that's against Christianity where people are willing to use that then. And second, that if you start saying that sex is one thing specifically or it, it's got a purpose that's specific, all of a sudden your own lifestyle might be called into question. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think we we too often have, have said, well, we're going to teach this in our church, mm-hmm. but we're not going to get involved in mm-hmm. in supporting the people who are fighting against this. And honestly... Long before it was popular, I downloaded Ryan T. Anderson's Harvard article on the conjugal view of marriage. And he was like really one of the first voices talking about that issue from a non-biblical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the pro-life movement. We need to be arguing this from the non-biblical standpoint in the public square. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, before we talk about that, we'd like to let everyone know, you're listening to Lori Peters this week on the Deeper Waters podcast. No relation, as far as we know. <laughs> but if you're listening next week, we're going to be getting someone from across the pond, uh, Daniel Roger from the UK Right to Life organization, is going to be my guest. And we're going to be talking about, yes, abortion again, and things are a bit different with it in the UK. So we'll be talking about that next week. For now, let's uh, get back to the show here and talking with Lori about the issue of abortion and how it's affecting our country and I'm sorry I'm having a memory blank what was it that you just said I talked about arguing in the public square from a non-biblical standpoint Uh, now some some people might say why on earth would you do a non-biblical standpoint don't we care about what the Bible says and my sense is yes we care but the thing is if you're out there arguing, chances are the person you're talking to doesn't care what the Bible says. And just but, like if you were a missionary going to another country, you'd have to learn the language of that country. You have to learn the intellectual language of the person you're talking to as well. I agree 100%. We talk about this in apologetics all the time, that mm-hmm. we live in a post-Christian world where mm-hmm. people didn't grow up in church. So when you go to them and say, do you know that the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through him. And they say, and why should I believe the Bible over the Quran? Mm-hmm. The right. same is true in the pro-life movement. We are dealing with people who have not read Psalm 139 mm-hmm. and have no respect for the Bible as being authoritative. So we have to argue from an ethical standpoint. Yes, the Bible is our foundation. Yes, we know that it's true. But we have to put together logical and philosophical arguments and make the legal case outside of quoting scripture. And I've seen this even in the um, uh, euthanasia movement. I I participate in an organization that fights euthanasia. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the most interesting conversations I had was with an attorney when we testified before the New Hampshire State Legislature against a physician-assisted suicide bill. She said one of her difficulties as she travels the nation is that a lot of pro-life groups, when they go to testify before their state legislators, they want to quote scripture and Mm -hmm. argue that life is valuable and only God should decide when the end of life is. Yes, that's all true, but legislators don't care. Mm -hmm. They only care about how a particular bill is going to affect them, how it's going to affect their votes, is going to affect their constituency. Mm -hmm. They don't care what the biblical foundation is. Mm -hmm. And it's And this attorney was explaining to me that she was very frustrated because she tries to help pro-life advocates make the most of their testimony. Mm. And they get frustrated with her because she says, don't quote Bible verses. Well, let's talk about what happens at the pregnancy center that you're at here. Because let's suppose a woman comes in and she's considering having an abortion. What goes on then? Well... Let me walk you through step by step. A woman who comes in uh, is going to come in and fill an intake form out. It's completely confidential, just as confidential as going to the doctor. Mm -hmm. She will be brought into a a counseling room. She will be then offered a free pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. That's because, believe it or not, a lot of young women come in and think they're pregnant and they're not because they don't understand basic biology. So pregnancy centers offer free pregnancy tests. Once the test has been shown to be positive, then the counselor, again, one-on-one, privately, will ask what this young woman is thinking about doing. If she uh, indicates that she is considering an abortion, a good counselor will ask why and try and get to the bottom of the reasons. Because a lot of times those reasons are really unwarranted. Mm -hmm. Fear of what other people will think. Fear, if if it's a teenager, that mom and dad will kick them out of the house. Fear that they won't be able to finish school or continue working. And a lot of those just need to be talked through. If she continues to say that she wants an abortion, then a counselor will go through all of her options with her, as we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. And we'll, you, usually there's literature to share with her the risks of having an abortion, the physical and emotional risks. They're all scientifically backed. They have footnotes from the various journals and articles so that they're scientifically uh, supported. And it depends on how things go from there. A lot of times a client will want to talk about those things or they'll want to leave and think about it and come back. Uh, sometimes they leave and we never hear from them again. Sometimes they leave and they come back to talk more. And again, a lot of it is just being able to express how they feel. If they're being pressured by someone, how to talk to someone. As counselors, we will often uh, help a client tell her boyfriend or her parents in a counseling kind of situation so it's a safe environment. And if she chooses to have an abortion, we always tell her before she leaves that if she uh, decides she needs help after that, she can always come back and get help mm-hmm. after she's chosen an abortion. Mm-hmm. Obviously, our goal is to help a client feel like she does not need to make that choice. 
Mm-hmm. And we cover the various services that a center offers so that she doesn't have to make that choice. You know, I'm thinking about what she said and comparing it to what you said at the start of the show about the, the notion of shame being mm. so prevalent in, I can't think, isn't it so sad that so many people, one of the last places they'd want to go to get help is the church. Yeah. Because they, they are so concerned about how the church will look at them. You know, I have spoken to, uh, I don't even know, I can't even count how many churches and the title of my talk is The Church's Response to Crisis Pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Let me take a minute and share about my own experience. Okay. Um, I was in a strong Southern Baptist church. They knew my parents. My parents were leaders in the church. Um, they knew me because I was born in the pew, practically. Mm-hmm. And when I got pregnant, and I didn't choose to go live in a maternity home in secret and come back, and I didn't choose to give my child up for adoption. There were people who really pressured my parents and me to get married. That was the first thing. You should get married. I was 17 years old. Not a good decision. Um, others who were rightly disappointed, but in their disappointment, they thought shunning me was the answer. Others who were very supportive and then there was my pastor who told my parents that God would never be able to use me again as he could have if I hadn't made this mistake now of course that's completely unbiblical Mm -hmm. I think David is a pretty good example of that Peter Yep. uh, look what Saul did before he was saved my goodness he was a persecutor of Christians Mm -hmm. I, I think God can overcome our past Right. But I think often as a church, when somebody sins in a way that is very obvious, by the way, let me make it clear that having sex outside of marriage is the sin. Being pregnant outside of marriage is not the sin. It's the consequences to the sin. Good, good. Difference. And we often confuse the consequences mm-hmm. with the sin mm-hmm. because it's visible. Right. You know, when somebody lies, you don't see the visible consequence of that. Mm-hmm. If somebody Gossip. watched pornography on TV, yeah. you can't see that at church. Right. So we confuse the consequences, and then we decide it's so egregious what somebody has done that we want to get our pound of flesh. Mm-hmm. And really and truly, if you look at not just Matthew 18, but if you look at the biblical principles in the epistles for church discipline... That is the job of the pastor and elders. In my case, that would have been the job of my youth pastor. But it's not just your regular church member's job to exact punishment and ensure repentance. Right. It's the leadership's position. In my Mm -hmm. case, I had been repentant for six months before I found out I was pregnant. It was what ended the relationship was my repentance. Mm -hmm. And... So, in my case, it was just a verification of where I was and what we were going through and what, where I was with the Lord. But I didn't need to stand up in front of all 700 people at my church and talk about it. But mm-hmm. that's often what we want to do. And then when we shun people who 
are seeking help. In my case, I was 17. My parents had a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, my brother, and now we were going to be welcoming this child, so we had, you know, we needed baby things and just practical help as well as spiritual help. My parents were grieving and they were heartbroken and they were having to, to defend their daughter from these horrible things people were saying. They needed support. Mm-hmm. And there were people who were just so mean and and hateful. And so mm-hmm. I tell people when I speak in front of churches about what Second Corinthians says. As many people know, in First Corinthians, Paul is chastising the church because there's a man involved in sexual sin. Mm-hmm. And he's being allowed to continue openly being in sexual sin without discipline. Right. He tells him he needs to be disciplined. In Second Corinthians, we are rightfully inferring that he's referring to the same situation when he says, Now, forgive him and bring him back in because the punishment of the majority is enough. For if you do not, you risk giving him overwhelming sorrow by continuing to punish him. When you are pregnant and when you choose to raise your child or relinquish your child, so this is something everybody can see, the punishment, i.e. the consequences, are enough. You don't need people at church treating you meanly when you've repented and God has forgiven you. Mm-hmm. Because getting up every hour and a half with a child who has jaundice is punishment enough. Right. Making decisions about school and I went to a Christian school, and so it got real complicated, was punishment enough. Being a single mom, going to school and working, was punishment enough. Mm-hmm. But when we feel like we need to get our pound of flesh as a church, mm-hmm. we drive women to Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go through what I went through. Right. And then we have this other side. We've had Sanctity of Life Sunday at churches now remembering the Roe v. Wade for decades. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes in our zeal to be pro-life, we forget that there is probably more than one person in the congregation who has been touched by abortion, Mm -hmm. whether they had one or knew someone who did. We have to be very, very careful when we talk about this issue to not treat abortion like it's the unpardonable sin. Right. It's not. We need to provide compassion and understanding because we did not walk through that woman or man's shoes at the time that they made a decision. We need to show that God brings grace and love, mercy and forgiveness, and there can be intense healing of the guilt and sorrow. When we look at the life of Jesus in the New Testament, one thing that strikes me is that did Jesus often get tough with his opponents? Yes. Did he preach, in some cases we could say, fire and brimstone? Yes. Yes. Because he, he, no one said harder words on sin than Jesus did. No one took a harder line on the issue than he did. Right. But no one was more gentle and comforting towards sinners than Jesus was. And when Jesus spoke tough words, it wasn't to sinners who'd made mistakes and were trying to make things right and trying to do the right thing. It was to the religious people on the outside 
who were putting extra burdens on those sinners. He had nothing but tough language for them. And, you know, the Pharisees, for the most part, we could look and say they would be seen as good people mm-hmm. back in their days. Most of us would have loved to have had a Pharisee for a neighbor. We'd love to have one today. But right. their attitudes towards those who were struggling to do the right thing and were yet sinners was the problem. It was. And I have to tell a little joke here. Mm-hmm. When my son was in elementary school, he has a personality type that likes structure. Mm-hmm. And we were driving home from church. And I don't know, they must have talked about the Pharisees in, in their Sunday school time. Because he said to me, behind, he was sitting behind my seat, he said, you know what, Mom? I don't understand why people get so upset with the Pharisees. They were just trying to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And I laugh about that today because to some extent that's true. The Pharisees wanted to follow all the rules. The problem was they were also the rule makers. Right. <laughs> and they were imposing those rules on people who had no way of being able to follow all of them. Mm-hmm. And then they judged the people for not being able to follow them. Mm-hmm. And... I think in church sometimes we do that because abortion is so serious and its Mm -hmm. consequences are so serious and its effect on our society is so serious that we sometimes are harsh to people without even realizing it who have chosen to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And all that makes them want to do is shut down and Mm -hmm. never tell anybody and never seek help. Mm -hmm. This past Sunday, uh, Paul Compton and I did... A kind of he interviewed me on ways to be pro-life on Sanctity of Life Sunday and I started off with this very thing that some, at least one person in this room has been touched by an abortion and I'm here to tell you that Jesus loves you mm-hmm. and Jesus forgives all sin and that this is a place of compassion and mercy and healing and if you need someone to talk to if you need somewhere to get healing come see me because all we want you to do is to live a joyful life in Christ and not one of sorrow and guilt. Yeah, because unfortunately once you've committed the sin, you know, there's no going back. No. You can't undo any sin. So adding fervor guilt onto that isn't going to help. Now, if someone doesn't know they've done something wrong, then yeah, you're going to need to stress that. Yes. And get them to see that. But if they already see they've done something wrong and they're trying to do the right thing after that, you're just pouring salt on their wounds. I mean, I would think most of your church should have, they, they should have rightfully been sad that premarital sex took place and you got pregnant as a result. But they should have been rightfully celebrating that she's letting the child live and she's not having an abortion and we are going to support this child. That's exactly right. And I think that the church has done better in the 26 years since my son was born. I still think we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Because, again, our self-righteousness t- tends to get in the way of the righteousness of Christ mm-hmm. on these kind of issues. But I, I do think the church as a whole is generally doing better. There's an acknowledgement that we need to be openly discussing this. Mm-hmm. There's an acknowledgement that um, premarital sex is really at an all-time high, mm-hmm. especially among uh, young people under 25. It's almost an accepted way of life. Mm-hmm. The hookup generation is rampant. 
this idea of using Tinder and other social media apps just to have a one-night stand. I mean, I couldn't have fathomed that when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And now being able to teach these principles of of covenant relationship and and the conjugal relationship of marriage, we're fighting that uphill battle. But at the same time, we have to lace it with compassion and truth. And that's the way Jesus did it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the passage, and, and we don't have to go into, you know, the, the historical reliability of the passage, but we'll, the passage in John 8 yeah. of the woman who comes before Jesus, the adulterous woman, and, and he has love and compassion. He keeps the crowd from stoning her. But at the same time, he tells her, go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. So there was still that compassion, con- compassionate confrontation of sin. Mm-hmm. If uh, anyone's interested, I did interview uh, back in 2013 on September 7th, Dr. Frida Bush on the hookup culture. In fact, we interviewed her again on January 25th of 2014 on abortion's medical effects on women. But yeah. at this point in the show, I'd like to remind everyone that what we do is, um, around here, it's listener-supported entirely. And we really depend on listeners like you to keep us going. And if you'd like to support us, go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. Now, we could be changing our server soon. We're, in fact, working on hoping to purchase a domain name of deeperwaters.com, which would be a whole lot easier. But don't know what's going to happen but, you know, you just watch the blog, you'll see what goes on. And if you, you can't find a blog one day, just do a search for me in Deeper Waters, you'll find it. But if you want to, go to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries at the blog page. And there's a link that you can click on to make a donation. Now, when you go there, you're going to go to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You have gone to the right place. That's my in-laws right there, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you can make a donation to them. And you just send an email to me or Mike or Debbie or Allie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to the Deeper Waters. And they will make sure we get it. And if you want to set yourself up to be a monthly donor, you're the bread and butter bin of what we do. That's that's the best of all. And whenever you donate, it is going to be tax deductible. You can also go on Amazon and buy a number of the books that I have for sale. Yeah, that I have written or co-written. One I've written is the Apostles' Creed, a creed for the ages. I look at it. Since my church reads the Apostles' Creed like I want us to have it so that we could have access to some good information on the creed and the historical foundations of Christianity and such. But we've also got other books of had a hand in writing, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless, to look at Dan Barker and his atheism. And then, guys, I want you all to be paying attention to this one, especially, and I use guys specifically. You can support us through jewelry. Now, why do I say that? There's a uh, holiday coming up that some of you might want to pay attention to <laughs> called Valentine's Day. Yeah, if you miss this one, your lady is going to be very upset with you. And some of you for Valentine's Day, you might even be thinking, you know, this could be a good time to pop that question. But if you're going to buy your lady something special, why not do it through us? And you can support us by purchasing jewelry. Just go to the the link there, support us via purchasing jewelry. And 
Use the access code LOVE. My friend Lena Clester handles that for Premier Jewelry. And let's suppose you go and you buy an item for 100 bucks. However much the item costs, 25% of what you purchase will go to support people barters. Then if you let her know. That means you can buy your lady a very nice item, get all those good brownie points with her, and you can support a ministry at the same time. I'm sorry, but that sounds like a win-win to me. And guys, you want to be ready for Valentine's Day. Like I have, I haven't missed Valentine's Day once. Haven't missed a birthday. Haven't missed an anniversary. It matters. They appreciate it. Um, Lori, do you have an organization you'd like to encourage people to donate to? I do. Uh, I run everything that I do under the umbrella of Ratio Christi as a chapter mm-hmm. director, as a community apologist, mm-hmm. as a speaker. And the way you can do that is through our website, which is Peters, P-E-T-E-R-S, dot Ratio Christi, R-A-T-I-O-C-H-R-I-S-T-I, dot org. That'll take you to uh, Kevin and I's support page, and you can click on uh, make a donation right under the Help Our Cause, which is on the right-hand side of the screen, or it has the instructions if you'd like to use uh, old-fashioned snail mail to mm-hmm. send that where to send that and how to send that to Ratio Christie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, just been typing in as soon as you said it. I see it right here, Lori and Kevin Peters, Ratio Christie Chapter Directors. So people, I encourage you, go there. Again, it's uh, Peter. Can, can you repeat that again? Because it, it's, gone, it's gone different. Sure. It's Peters, P-E-T-E-R-S, mm-hmm. dot R-A-T-I-O-C-H-R-I-S, org. And if you're a regular listener and follow the show and podcast, I really hope you don't have a hard time remembering how to spell Peters. It's, it's a pretty common <laughs> name around here. Now, let's uh, get back to the talk about helping the women out who sure. are struggling. Although, I do want to say one thing about okay. your Valentine's Day thing. Okay. Any men listening to this, take a lesson. My husband has a triple whammy on Valentine's Day. It is my birthday, it is Valentine's Day, and it is the day he proposed to me. Mm. I can tell you that of all people in this world, he would be the most in trouble if he forgot. Mm -hmm. But even so, for other women, it's important even just to be remembered. A note, a card, a letter, Mm -hmm. it is important to be remembered on that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Michael Bird in his book, How God Became Jesus, said something once about uh, forgetting the anniversary of him and his wife and saying something like, his wife had indicated that the, the slaughter by the angel of the <laughs> Assyrian soldiers would be mild compared to what would happen <laughs> if he ever forgot again. <laughs> I can understand that. Mm-hmm. So now a, a woman comes in, and what, what are the kind of reasons that she's hesitant usually to not go through the to not go through the pregnancy all the way? And what what do you usually say back? Well, the biggest reason is that they will offer is fear of how their life is going to be forever changed mm-hmm. because they weren't planning to have this change at that point in their life. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I would often say is that many times in our life we have unexpected surprises. Sometimes we have somebody show up from out of town that we weren't expecting, Mm -hmm. and we invite them into our home, Mm 
mm-hmm. and have a good time with them. Sometimes our flight gets canceled and we're very upset about not getting out, and yet it gives us another day to vacation where we are or to spend time with loved ones before we leave. Mm-hmm. So life is full of unexpected surprises. Yeah, if and I could uh, jump in here with something that came to my mind when you said that is my own wife has this kind of thing happen because several years ago she actually did have a suicide attempt and she mm-hmm. hasn't been shy about this because of some guy who didn't seem to want anything to do with her anymore and just didn't want to deal with it at that point. And while she was in recovery, she found she started communicating with another guy who a friend had told her, had told this guy, yeah, you should try and talk to her. She really needs someone right now. And, and so she started talking to this other guy, uh, you know, just not really wanting to do anything with him, especially because he was a total nerd, and who wants that kind of nerd and <laughs> such, and yeah, you know where this story's going, she ended up marrying me anyway, <laughs> so yeah, things happen that you just don't expect. That's exactly right, yeah. I mean, in my, in my own life, when I had Brandon, I was at the beginning of my senior year, he was born at the end of August, mm-hmm. And my school did not know what to do with me. I was the very first girl not to have gotten pregnant, but the first one who chose to raise her child mm-hmm. and not relinquish their child for adoption. I was the very first, and they did not know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And they, what they chose to do was not to kick me out because they knew they didn't have biblical grounds for that since I had been repentant by that point by eight months. Mm-hmm. But rather to have me finish my credits by homeschool, and then let me graduate in the spring. Well, I only needed like three credits to graduate, and I finished the work in like six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I actually started college under a program for honor students. And so uh, I was disappointed that I wasn't going to get to go back to school. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, by January, I had already taken uh, several college classes. I was enrolled for a full semester, the second semester. And it was a friend of mine that said, look, you're in college. Why don't you go to the the Baptist Student Union? Now it's called Baptist Collegiate Ministries. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I, I will do that. I wouldn't have done that if I'd still been at high school. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Kevin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have things happen in our lives that seem to be disappointing and tragic. Right. And having an unplanned pregnancy can be one of those things. Mm-hmm. But it's our decision to make the best of it. Right. And there are options. If you choose to raise a child, mm-hmm. in particularly in a pregnancy center setting, a counselor will be there through the whole process, can even be your birth coach if you need one, mm-hmm. will help you with parenting classes, practical needs like car seat, stroller, clothes, diapers, if you need a place to live because your parents did kick you out, which, by the way, Almost never happens, but sometimes it does in very dysfunctional situations. Mm -hmm. There are places you can live. There are places you can go. There are families who will open the doors for you. Mm -hmm. There are so many resources for single moms today, far more than there were 25 years ago, to continue your education, to find a job, to go to college, to be successful, and really overcome the stereotype of being a single mom. If you choose 
to that that it, that you just you'll carry to term, but you just don't want to raise the child because you can't see that. There is the gift of adoption, mm-hmm. and we can walk through that process with you. We can connect you with the adoption agency that will walk through that with you. There are so many options today for open adoptions where birth mothers have a a part of the life of their child so that they're not completely isolated or closed off like closed adoptions used to be. But if you want a closed adoption, that's available as well. So there are so many more positive ways to respond to an unexpected situation and people who will walk with you and walk alongside you through that process. Yeah, there are so many couples out there that are childless, and they're good people, and they would love to take in a child. I mean, I've known some people who I've seen online who they've met someone who's considering abortion, and they say, look, send the kid to me. I'll take care of the kid. I mean, no mm-hmm. questions. All they want to do is save a life. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I will say that there are a lot of positives with adoption. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of bureaucratic nightmares right now with foster care, mm-hmm. and there are families who would love to adopt children from foster care, and, and the red tape can make that a little prohibitive. Mm-hmm. And that's a sad thing because there are a lot of families out there who will take any child. Yeah. But particularly with a newborn piece of cake, mm-hmm. there are so many people who are waiting, loving, stable couples who can really give a child a life that that maybe maybe a woman can't or maybe a woman wants for her child to have God's ideal mm-hmm. of a father and a mother in a marriage together. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the most beautiful pictures of Scripture are all the verses that talk about us being adopted, mm-hmm. sons and daughters of God. Mm-hmm. And I think... Over the years, adoption has has become a more positive option, but in the past it was not. It was hush-hush and secret and shameful, and, and you didn't tell a child they were adopted because that was bad. Mm-hmm. But really in Scripture, it is rejoicing and beautiful, and I think we should take that attitude with adoption. If God has adopted us into his family so that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, Mm-hmm. We should more than willing be to be willing to support adoption in our own culture, in our own life. And we can even remember that one of the Caesars who sat on the throne in the lifetime of Jesus was himself adopted. Yes. And, you know, I think adoption gets a bad rap, especially in the media and on TV. But it can be such a beautiful thing, and I've seen it happen. I have seen adoptive families that stay in close contact with the birth mother and it it's almost like the birth mother is just an extension of their family mm-hmm. but then the birth mother gets to go on and you know go to school or have a career or get married all those things they wanted to do anyway mm-hmm. and it can be such a positive blessing for the child because really and truly what is the most horrible thing to happen to have more people loving you mm-hmm. Of course not. Yeah. I'm thinking about how Dee Dee Warren, when she was on our show last year, one thing she said, and, and she'd say it depends on who you're talking to, but sometimes some people might need a blunt approach 
but sure, I have some people say, well, I'm not ready to be a mother. And she'll say, you're already a mother. That's right. The question is, are you going to be a mother of a living child or a dead one? It's true. And I would say that every counselor has to take their own unique approach. Just like apologists, we have our own kind of approach. I think that that is a good approach for some clients. Absolutely. And I think that's very true, especially when we speak at it on the broad, the broad scale. That just because you've had an abortion, I I think of um, Lena Dunham, who is a a spokesman for Planned Parenthood, and and I won't even go into the rest of her life. And that she's she's had an abortion and how she brags about it and talks about it so openly. And you're right. She's the mother, whether she wants to believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And there's a child who is going to spend eternity with Christ, but it didn't make the, the right decision. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, if a person comes in who uh, who has had an abortion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see several of those come in, no doubt. I mean, what do you do at that point? Well, it's usually a pretty heartbreaking decision. They've, they've come to a place in their life where they can't hide from it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it comes out in really negative ways. Sometimes, especially when a woman who's had an abortion then has children, subsequent to that, they can react in different ways. They can have significant postpartum depression sometimes they don't bond with their children Mm -hmm. and other times they're just grief stricken because they keep thinking about the child that they aborted Mm -hmm. and so by the time they get to me they've already realized they need help Mm -hmm. and a lot of times what they need is first just to say it out loud Mm -hmm. often their husband doesn't know and a lot of times their family doesn't know, and they need to just say it out loud to someone, to confess it. Mm-hmm. Once a woman has done that, then we can really begin the pro- process of healing. And, and it is a process. It's multiple appointments over multiple weeks. Uh, there's a great deal of good literature and curriculum out there that we walk through in a Bible study, first examining God's view of life, first of the mother and then of her child that is gone and then walking through that healing and forgiveness Mm -hmm. that is only offered through Christ and not all of the clients that I saw were Christians when they came in and I can only think of one who was not a Christian when she left the rest were Mm -hmm. can you tell some of this literature that you recommend for people who well CareNet puts out the best okay so they they have a whole workbook Bible study to go through. And that's why I really encourage you to go through them for this kind of training. Mm-hmm. If you're and let me let me make it clear, you're a volunteer counselor. Mm-hmm. They teach you how to walk through this Bible study with someone, but they also teach you when it's time to say you need to see a professional counselor. Mm-hmm. And they give you those kind of um, uh, resources to refer women to, and and I think that's very important to understand that there's a limit to this kind of of help. Mm-hmm. 
Beyond that, there are books that have been written, but I, I really hesitate to refer those outside of a counseling session because I think they can just impart more grief if a woman doesn't have someone to walk alongside her with. Mm-hmm. And and those stories can be more heart-wrenching than helpful because she needs somebody to help her through the grief process. Yes. And I'm one of the things we did at the pregnancy center was we would also have a time of the year where we would have a memorial service for women who had an abortion because there's no funeral. Mm-hmm. There's no closure that we have culturally to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And we often encourage them to give a name to their child, even if they didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, to give their child a name and uh, have a memorial service. Mm-hmm. I've even heard of cases where some women who regret the first abortion will have another one just because they think they deserve to be further punished for what they did. Yes, and women, well, a particular um, Irish study also found that young women late in their late teens who have an abortion are ten times more likely to commit suicide. Mm. And so you have those two factors, repeat abortions because they have incredible guilt and they think they don't deserve to be happy or they've seared their conscience and they, and and they've become numb to mm-hmm. that guilt and then others who just are flooded with overwhelming grief and shame and they can't face it and they can't tell anybody they mm-hmm. don't want anybody to know and it drives them to attempt suicide mm-hmm. and when you hear about these kinds of things and why and you, I still keep going, why doesn't, why is it that other people don't care about all these consequences and such? And the obvious reason is they don't want people to know. That's right, because remember, the bottom line is about money. Yeah. <laughs> Planned Parenthood wants to make money. Abortion providers, private ab- abortion providers want to make money. If you knew that you could hemorrhage to death, rupture your uterus, need a hysterectomy, damage the cervix, cause infertility, uh, potentially, and, and I hate, I almost hate to say this out loud because somebody may just really slam me on this, but if you want the references, I can email them to you. The link to breast cancer mm-hmm. and abortion. So you have these physical risks. Then there's the emotional risks. And it's funny because secular organizations, um, will try to do studies showing that most women do not regret their their abortion, but if you look into their way they ask the questions, they they ask it in a way that, well, would you change your mind if you could? And a lot of people won't say yes to that, but if you ask them, did you feel guilt, do you feel sorrow, do you feel lost, they'll say yes. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. So like the Gutmeyer, I just Gutmeyer. butchered the name on him. Yes, won't. You have to be careful looking at their stuff and really look at how they're asking the questions. Yeah. Because they don't want the truth to be out there. But if you look at the pro-life ministries, particularly Right to Life, they will have studies where they ask detailed questions, and you see the emotional and psychological consequences and risks of abortion. And for those wanting in on the medical perspective, what Lori's been saying is back to in the interview I did with Frida Bush, including the link to breast cancer. 
So go there and listen to that if you want some more information at this point. But Lori, again, we'll have the information if you want to send it to her. And, you know, when we're talking about the idea of the forgiveness and such that comes through, one of the things I, I tell people when we're dealing with stress and matters of that sort of thing, it is amazing how much good theology can help someone out mm. when they're struggling. And one of the things is we just don't have a good theology of forgiveness and grace a lot of times. It's true. I think, like I said earlier, we often focus on enacting punishment or making sure people understand the consequences of their decision, mm-hmm. and we lack grace. Now, I'm not saying church leaders or a pastor or an elder doesn't need to have a sit-down and a one-on-one conversation because we don't want people continuing in their sin. Right. But we need to extend far more grace than we do punishment. Jesus paid the price for our sin Mm -hmm. eternally. Yes, we have real-life consequences because we still live in a fallen world. Right. But we need to be pointing people to the forgiving grace and mercy of the cross and not worrying about so much, am I sure they're repentant enough? Mm-hmm. And I'd say, honestly, we don't have detectors to read their hearts and such. <laughs> That's Unless true. we have evidence otherwise that can indicate they're lying or something like that, give people the benefit of the doubt if they say they're repentant for something. That's right. And you know what? I think if we lovingly come around people who say they are repentant, Mm -hmm. even if they really don't quite understand that or they they aren't really repentant yet because they don't understand it, the love of the body of Christ can help in that sanctification process. Mm -hmm. If they know that there are people who are around them that love them, they're more likely to be accountable to them. So even if they're not fully aware of what they've done I think that love and grace of the body of Christ can help them along that journey Mm -hmm. rather than if we're enacting punishment we're more likely to drive them away and into Mm non-repentance and unfortunately the church has gotten that reputation um, Philip Yancey talked about his book has a book Soul Survivor How My Faith Survived the Church Mm. which I think is sadly appropriately titled, yeah. and about <clears throat> this sort of a young lady who I think she was struggling with prostitution, if I'm remembering correctly, and someone trying to get her to get some help, and we said, well, why don't you go to church? Said, For church? That's the last place I would go to. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's true so many times. For many of us, the church is the last place we go to. We we don't want to open up at a church, and that's because so many of us know we're supposed to come and live holy lives at the church and that we're not supposed to be, you know, struggling with sin or anything bad. And that's the very reason we're supposed to be going to church in the first place. That's right. Jesus came for the sick. Right. And and we're all sick. And Mm -hmm. I I think about Casting Crown's song, Stained Glass Masquerade. They address that very issue that I'm faking it with a smile. And Mm -hmm. what would you do if I really told you where I am and how I'm struggling? Mm -hmm. We'd freak out as a church. Mm-hmm. But I will, you know, the the sad thing is this, is there are a lot of bad apples as far as churches are concerned that have 
earned this rightful reputation mm-hmm. of not to go there, right. but it affects those churches who are doing it well. Mm-hmm. And if if someone was you know listening today and and they were asking, well, <laughs> that church down the road, I know how legalistic they are. There's no way I'm going there for help. Look for another church because for every church that's doing it wrong, I can tell you there's a church that's doing it right mm-hmm. who wants to love you. But guess what? Even the church that's doing wrong, they're filled with people who are just as broken and need help and need Jesus just as much as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're talking about the people out there listening, let's get even more personal right now. Let's suppose there's a woman out there who's listening to this show who's had an abortion and is just struggling with guilt of a bit, maybe even suicidal for all we know. Mm. What If you had this woman here, generally what would you say to her? I would tell you that Jesus loves you mm. and that I love you and you do not need to carry the negative emotions of grief and sorrow, guilt, shame, whatever they are. Mm. You don't have to carry those. There is someone who loves you more than anyone else in the world and wants to heal your heart, who wants to bring joy back into your life, and his name is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is come to him and seek him. And you can do that through picking up a Bible and reading, I would say, particularly the book of John. But you can find that in a pastor. You can find that in a Christian counselor. You can find that at a CareNet pregnancy center. Mm-hmm. There are people who will help you in that search for forgiveness and to seek joy and to find true happiness in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And again, there are organizations out there like Rachel's Vineyard and others that are specifically geared to help women with this struggle out there. Yes, there are. Because a woman who has chosen abortion, there are millions others who have chosen it as well. Mm-hmm. And we think of it as being a private thing, but really and truly, it's not. Mm-hmm. There are more women who have experienced abortion than we probably want to admit. And just to make sure we're not forgetting, we have to be consistent. Now let's go and suppose there's a man out there Mm-hmm. who's taken a part in abortion and he might be married to a girl right now he might not be we don't know but he's struggling with just much guilt what do you say to the man specifically i would say that there is a way to to receive respect mm-hmm. and forgiveness because right now if if you're a man who participated in abortion you are probably feeling like you're disrespecting yourself, mm-hmm. that you are not proud of your decision, that you feel like you let down the responsibility of being the leader in the relationship, and there is forgiveness there. My goodness, the Bible is full of stories of men who failed God and failed the women in their lives. Mm-hmm. And God used them, brought them to repentance and forgiveness, and there is healing. And honestly, for both men and women, you need to confess your sin. You may have confessed it to God, but honestly, from a psychological standpoint, you need to seek help and tell that to another person 
because secret sin is so destructive. Mm-hmm. And there's there's help. I really liked also, I know it's something different you said that when you talked about what you'd say to a man, you made sure to emphasize the respect aspects because I, mean, I, I think a lot of women just miss that this is something really huge for men, that we speak in terms of respect far more than we speak in terms of love. It carries a whole lot more currency to us. We would rather have the women in our lives say, I respect you and show it and say, I love you, and show it. It's true, and I think particularly for men, and let me address this issue, men who did not want the woman in their life to have an abortion, and she chose one anyway, yeah. that is, to me, one of the hugest ways to disrespect a man. Mm-hmm. A man who wants to care for his offspring and is forced to give up through death their offspring, that is incredibly painful and disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you that men need respect. I think that is crucial in a relationship. But I think abortion at its core is saying, men, we don't need you. It is the ultimate disrespect of 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to a man out there who's struggling because he didn't want the woman in his life, whoever past or present, to have an abortion, and she had one anyway, because even though he hasn't really done anything wrong in that area, he's probably still got a lot of guilt there. What would you say to him? I would say you still need someone to walk through this with you because you've had a child murdered. Mm-hmm. That is extraordinarily painful. Whether it was through an abortion or you know a serial killer, it doesn't matter. Your child was murdered. And so you need someone to go through the process of grief because you have probably haven't been allowed to grieve. Mm-hmm. And you have a right to grieve yeah. and go through all the stages of grief, a right to have a memorial for that child, mm-hmm. to say out loud that you have this child, and for others to acknowledge that you were the father of the child. Mm-hmm. And there can be great healing and restoration, but also... You need someone to help you to forgive the mother of your child. Yeah. You know, we have to be brief as we're getting, brief as we're getting close, brief as we're getting close to time and think about two different things. But I like what you said that men have to grieve. You know, because usually we're also raised in a culture where men are told to not be emotional, or mm-hmm. not show weakness or anything like that. And grief can be a kind of weakness for men. But they need to be able to be weak, uh, ironically, sometimes it takes a very strong man to be weak. Yes, yes. And God grieves over our sin. He grieves over the dumb things we do. If our own God can grieve righteously over those things, we can grieve. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone's looking for uh, one of these sinners around them, I mean, where would you suggest they go so they can go find that help? Well, I would go to Google. Mm-hmm. And I would put in CareNet. Mm-hmm. When you go to CareNet's main webpage, you can put in your zip code or your address and find the, lo- lo- the closest location to you. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you can look up. Um, oh, it's the name just escaped me. Catholic Ministries. Mm-hmm. Or you can go to your local Catholic church and and ask there as well. But 
um, both the Catholic organizations and CareNet are working in partnership with each other these days. Mm. So you can you can go to any CareNet as well. If you don't have a CareNet, you can look up uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center in your area. You want to be very careful. You want to pick one who offer, offers uh, counseling services. And you want to look for somewhere that does not offer abortion services and they do advertise that they do not provide referrals to abortion and the reason I say that is because you want to get the full facts and at a, at a pregnancy center you will get all the facts at a, mm-hmm. an abortion provider you will not mm-hmm. well Nori it's been fascinating having you on here and I have, people want to find out more about you and what you're doing do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you I do. You can find my blog, although I am really terrible about blogging because uh, I'm usually working with students more, but it's graniteapologists.com because we live in the Granite State. Mm. You can find me there, and you can find me, uh, Lori, at graniteapologists.com is my email, Mm -hmm. and I am very willing to um, talk, email, Skype, FaceTime, phone, whatever you need. If you want to ask me questions on um, any bioethics issues, I'm I'm very open to talking. Of course, I'm also an apologist, so any apologetics issues, I'm very willing to discuss. And I'm available to your church, your small group, your Sunday school class, your Bible study, your youth group, to talk about any one of these issues. Now, what, uh, what final words would you like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? I would say find a way to get involved mm-hmm. because this this issue is driving our country. It is driving the choices in our medical care. It's driving the choices for children with Down syndrome, special needs families, mm-hmm. and it's affecting how we treat our elderly. And we have devalued life now for 43 years in this country in the most precious and most vulnerable stage, and it's having its ripple effect. So get involved. If you don't know how to get involved, email me. I'll tell you. There's a plethora of ways to get involved. Don't just sit in your churches and quote Psalm 139 one Sunday out of the year. Be proactive in this movement in loving men and women who are facing unexpected pregnancies or difficult pregnancies and are being told that their only option is an abortion. Well, Lori, I'd like to thank you for coming on and talking about this important topic, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And I'd like to let everyone know that uh, next week we're going to have Daniel Roger in from the UK talking about, again, yes, abortion, because I do believe this is a serious issue, and it's not one I'm trained the most in, so I want to get on the people who are. And for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.